I'm Jeremy Sparrowin. I'm Matt Levine. This is Cornucopia. The fountain of youth was found in a low-rent part of town. It was squeezed in between a hair salon and a fish market out there somewhere in a Westport strip mall. The store was run by John Moretti, a charismatic and quirky Italian in his early 40s. You wouldn't take him for a hippie, but he was a committed vegetarian and a total health food nut. His assistant manager, John DiCarlo, was a 55-year-old former trucker who looked the part. Every couple months, DiCarlo took his bad teeth, droopy mustache, and big heart on a week-long fast to cleanse his soul and bowels both. For his part, Moretti was a disciple of St. Germain, a spiritual practice that meant he refused to sell onions or garlic or anything even flavored with them. He never told me what to wear, but whenever I came to work in my red Gore-Tex raincoat, he preferred that I leave it in my car. But John was a wonderful teacher and a masterful grocer. His store was packed with a sharply organized variety of strange and wonderful groceries and produce, potions and lotions, powders and pills. It promised a future of good health, offering a rare alternative to the processed and junk food packed aisles of the supermarkets of the day. To a 25-year-old struggling through grad school while driving a taxi in New York City, the place was a revelation. I was working there within a month. Food isn't just fuel. It's a part of culture, a ritual we share with others. If we want to be dramatic about things, we could even call it a great unifier of all humanity. And it's big business, too. This is a show about that business. In the coming months, Matt and I will look at the organic farms supplying stores like Whole Foods, issues of racial and economic justice that surround nutrition, the marketing that drives our desires, and the many other folds and wrinkles that surface out of this vast topic. But today, we begin by looking at the history of that great miracle of abundance in our age. Episode 1, The Supermarket. In Little House on the Prairie, Olson's Mercantile was the type of store where Americans first bought their groceries. He stood behind the counter, gave Mr. Olson a list, and waited while he weighed out the flour, grains, salt, and sugar if you were lucky enough to afford it, told you what you owed, and you took it home. So if you find yourself complaining about Safeway or Stop and Shop or Kroger, take a time out. Imagine what it was like to shop back in those days. Two weeks? That don't do me no good. Here's Ford Auto Man's Bristol. Hold on now. I don't want this pomade. I want Dapper Dan. I don't care Dapper Dan. I care Fop. Well, I don't want Fop, goddammit. I'm a Dapper Dan man. Remember, railroads weren't even hitting most of the towns in the expanding American frontier and in urban centers, while the density of population allowed for the greater trade in things like grains, produce, and other necessities of today. Back then, they were mostly considered luxuries. And yet all this was happening in a rapidly expanding America. The country's early settlers had already largely displaced her native inhabitants, it must be said violently, and begun a century of massive industrialization. If these early stores were the first minnows plying the vast oceans of profits to be had, it was only a matter of time before a bigger fish came along. 
1859, the Great Atlantic and Pacific Tea Company started what soon became America's powerhouse merchant. A&P's format introduced standardization. Products were produced in A&P factories, stored in A&P warehouses, and delivered in A&P trucks. For the first time, Americans could purchase groceries based on price. And that model would quickly prove to be a resounding success. By 1900, it was America's largest grocer. And in 1912 was the equivalent of what Google or McDonald's is today. And just like today, these new retail giants would quickly devour everything in their path. The chains were able to undercut the mom and pops, and they changed the retail landscape forever. But along with all this change came growing resistance. A backlash developed a resentment of chains, their growing power, and their ability to put small, local businesses into the dustbin. And yet the draw of ever lower prices would not be denied. And in just a couple years, yet another player would enter the scene to once again upend the business of selling groceries. If Memphis, Tennessee had Twitter in 1916, the hashtag would have been OMG Piggly Wiggly, America's first self-service modern grocery store launched in Memphis and soon Piggly Wiggly was the talk not only of the town but of American retailers and shoppers everywhere. The store was unlike anything anyone had ever seen. Products were on shelves, you could pick them up, each one had its own price tag, and to help you gather all those groceries, an invention the world had never seen before, the shopping cart. All this clever innovation and steely-eyed business sense gets us most of the way there. But the leap from mere grocery store to supermarket, that takes a bit more. It takes a promoter with a flair for the dramatic and also a cocky, opinionated ass. Enter scene right. Michael Cullen. Cullen started his grocery career at Kroger, another early chain. One imagines his co-workers hated him. He was a know-it-all, consistently urging new innovations that he swore would increase sales 10, 20, 30 times. He famously wrote a letter to the head of the Kroger Corporation detailing his thoughts on how to transform the way people bought groceries. He was rebuffed time after time, but was never stopped. In 1930, he opened his first store, King Cullen, on the outskirts of Manhattan in Jamaica, Queens, and brought his vision to light. And amazing as it may seem... We are just talking about a supermarket here, after all. At first, that vision may have been so dramatic, it would have seemed like a mirage. His stores were gigantic for the time, five to ten times the size of the typical A.M.P. or Piggly Wiggly. Exotic products from around the world were available for purchase. People would go there just to marvel at the things on the shelves. It was a destination, a day trip, a family outing, probably a reason to skip church, too. And yet at the time, these new stores were considered distinctly lowbrow. Located on the outskirts of New York and old warehouse districts, they were crudely referred to as cheapies, yet people loved them. Cullen doubled down on the model pioneered by A&P, trading sales margins for sheer volume with a ruthlessness that was completely unmatched for its day. He had an advantage like Walmart does today. The size of these stores, along with the decreasing cost of shipping goods, allowed Cullen to outprice even his most cutthroat competitors. And this edge was further sharpened by cutting back on the allowances stores would typically make with their customers. No longer would lines of credit be extended for regulars, and delivery was pretty much completely cut out. The so-called cash-and-carry model, though less convenient, would allow prices to be cut even further. 
Estimates put him 10 to 15% lower than competing chains, let alone the struggling mom and pops. And about this fact, he was anything but bashful, proudly advertising his, quote, regular, everyday low prices in advertisements that were themselves an industry first. But this isn't just the story of one man and his ideas. As in many innovations, technology played a crucial role. None of this could happen without rails or refrigeration. The railways slashed the cost of shipping goods from growing national branded factories from Chicago down south up north in larger quantities. But if the railways solved the question of distribution, keeping goods fresh was a whole nother quandary. Refrigeration was equally remarkable. For the first time, Cullen and others were able to stock products they never could before. And for the shoppers themselves, the impact was just as big. The keystone in Cullen's revolution was home refrigeration. Cars allowed people to bring more groceries home, but the refrigerator cemented the transition. Now you could buy Friday's dinner on Monday, and the chops would still taste great. And all this would armor the industry from even the ravages of the Great Depression. Even as the Dust Bowl chased Oakey's West and a crashing stock market drove investors at the windows of America's financial centers, onward drove the Cullens of the world, perhaps strengthened even by a nation concerned with price above all else. And then in one fell swoop, everything changed. December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. World War II devastates Europe, Asia, and Northern Africa, but the United States emerges not in disarray, but stronger than ever. The newly minted superpower enters the late 40s wealthy and optimistic, no longer an often forgotten backwater, but a nation to whom the whole world's eyes would turn, and its people poised to seize whatever opportunity they could. A more affluent America cared less about saving pennies. Convenience became king. Location was paramount. And the nation was growing, too. Its victory was celebrated in bedrooms throughout the country. And out of this were born the millions and millions of hungry mouths of the baby boomers. Hordes of suddenly prosperous white families fled city centers and built suburbs to enjoy their new wealth amidst what they imagined to be less stifling surroundings. And of course, those mouths would need to be fed as well. In the America's suburbs, there was a seemingly endless supply of locations for supermarkets to expand their reach. And in many ways, it was the stores themselves that made all this possible. Supermarkets raced to the suburbs before the homes were even built. And all this led to spectacular growth. Before the war, supermarkets captured under four cents of every dollar spent. By the early 60s, their share of total purchases was 75 cents of every dollar. And to feed this growth, they made a meal of their punier competition. The stores that people shopped at in the cities, the smaller mom and pops, the butchers and the bakers, the seafood market and the pastry shop soon lost their customers. And growing conglomerates began eyeing even larger prey. Towards the end of the 50s, the suburbs became more saturated And so chains now look to acquire other smaller rivals as a way to increase their growth. And it wasn't just the stores themselves that were changing. 
So too were the goods they stocked. As the war machine ground to a halt, America's chemical manufacturers needed new markets. And the food industry would happily oblige. Swanson announces new three-course frozen dinners, the most complete frozen meal ever put in a single package. Complete from soup to dessert. It's the new Swanson three-course dinners. Artificial ingredients, colors, preservatives, and stabilizers, first used to transform the shelf life of food sent overseas to feed the troops, returned home, finding space on America's shelves. America's love affair with processed foods had begun. And while this would eventually lead to a crisis in health and nutrition today, it certainly contributed to a healthy bottom line for the companies involved. As food became more processed, those companies making them were growing increasingly large. Regional brands were soon, like those small mom-and-pop stores, eroding into the dustbin, and huge conglomerates were dominating more and more of America's supermarkets. Remember, you can trust Swanson. More people do. But by this point, the baby boomers had grown up, at least a little bit, and sparked a social and cultural revolution unlike anything the country had ever seen. And in so doing, they nurtured the seeds of a growing skepticism of corporate food, a sentiment they would carry with them into the 70s, when, for the first time in nearly 40 years, America's great economic engine began to falter. The early 70s was beset by the recession, high unemployment, high inflation, and rising oil prices. Supermarkets increasingly sought new store types to combat slowing profits. These included large warehouse megastores like Price Club, Costco, and Sam's Club, stores that Michael Cullen would have recognized 45 years earlier. His vision returned to the forefront. But oddly enough, it produced some of the opposite as well. The recession also spurred smaller format limited selection stores, places where corporate CEOs could reap profits through lower overhead and, most importantly, different union rules that reduced labor costs dramatically. But there were countervailing trends, too. Ironically, at the same time, we see the rise of the natural food stores, places that offered higher prices, little convenience, yet products that were less processed, had no artificial anything, and served both the needs of old-timers that had been drinking wheat germ oil and mail-ordering for whole wheat flour from the few places that would sell them, alongside the growing number of hippies and back-to-the-earth folks inspired to seek a better world. Sadly, all this wasn't to last. If we've learned anything so far, it's that the market abhors the small, independent, and local. It would be but a few short years before the more ambitious among this cadre would venture off into the world, dreaming the very same dreams as Michael Cullen. The natural food supermarket was born 10, 15 times larger than the little mom and pops. Whole Foods, Bread and Circus, and Mrs. Gooch's all began to crush the little guys. The landscape was pruned as the tiny stores soon dropped to the wayside. The selection, the convenience, and the price of the big guys was impossible to beat. The traditional retailers, meanwhile, found themselves holding the unsexy middle of the marketplace, battling budget-priced, high-volume outlets on one side and higher-margin premium stores on the other. 
This would prove to be a challenge for which they were caught unprepared. For so many years, unassailable atop their world, the supermarkets had grown complacent, beholden to a system that had rotten to its core. Supermarkets had become lazy, relying on slotting fees, which are essentially kickbacks from manufacturers in exchange for stores' most prime real estate, and in many cases, even the placement of products from their competitors. Slotting fees had an effect shifted retailers' focus from the customers to large industry giants like General Mills, Nestle, and Kraft. All this made adaptation awkward, if not impossible. Attempts to sell products on either side of the price divide were neutered by a now half-baked fealty to big business that limited stores' abilities to better tailor individual stores to the actual customers that shopped there. And even as all this was going on, the sheer number of grocery vendors was exploding as pharmacies, gas stations, and convenience stores began offering wider and wider varieties of foods, chipping away even further at sales and market share once held by the supermarkets. Today, a fragmented market has knocked the big chains from their once lofty perch. According to Oliver Wyman, in 1980, five of America's top ten retailers were grocery stores. Today, only Kroger, ironically the very company that refused Michael Cullen's revolutionary proposals 100 years ago, remains. In 2015, even the once mighty AMP declared bankruptcy, shuttering the last of its stores but not before its managers paid themselves $10 million in bonuses. And store loyalty, too, is in its death throes. As reported by the Food Marketing Institute, fewer and fewer shoppers report having a primary place to buy groceries. Today, it's anybody's game. And this brings us to now. A century and a half of development has produced a near ubiquity of food. It can be purchased at an impulse, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and on holidays, too. Carefully packaged and shelf-stabilized alongside windshield wiper blades, condoms, and aspirin, or fresh from high-end markets with an eye towards wealthier shoppers. It is a world with a multitude of contradictions. We have, here at least in the rich countries, defeated hunger for most, but in many ways at the cost of nutrition. We seem to care more than ever about eating quality foods, even while obesity and diabetes flourish at epidemic levels. These changes have sculpted our culture. The disappearance of the stay-at-home mom, the decline of the family dinner, the demand for convenience and the rise of on-the-go meals, they're all part of the story. It is a story of a culture that has become transfixed on what it consumes. From Julia Child to Paula Dean, food is no longer a simple resource, but an obsession. It fills not just our stomachs, but our Facebook feeds as well. We read stories about it, talk about it, and yes, even listen to podcasts about it. And still, the evolution continues. We'd like to thank you for calling Amazon Customer Service. This call may be recorded for quality assurance. Please stay on the line and we'll quickly connect you with an associate. After the beep, you can also tell us how to help you in one or two sentences. You can say something like, I have a Kindle question. All right, that's the show, folks. We'd like to give special thanks to Nicole Whedon at Glee Machine, our top-notch marketing guru, designer, and web 
genius. And I don't use those terms lightly. We'd also like to thank Alan Stonebreaker of Stonebreaker Design Works. Brian Stowell at Eastern Spring. And we've gleaned research from across the web, but we'd like to give special thanks to certain others. Paul B. Ellickson, author of The Evolution of the Supermarket Industry, from A&P to Walmart. Oliver Wyman Consulting for some research on online grocery. The Hartman Group for a lot of their research in particular for today's show, their supermarket infographic. We'd also like to thank Grossateria.com. And some personal thanks go out to Chris, Ethan, and Sebastian. And we'd also like to thank Cherry Pasamba. Matt. Matt Z- oh, you got it. Cherry Pasamba, Matt Zucker, Elon Zuckerberg, and Mark Musk. <laughs> Whoever the hell those are. And anyone who's ever taken a ride in a San Francisco pedicab. Don't forget, cornucopia.show is our website. Check out our blog. Sign up for our Twitter feed. Like us on Facebook. And we'll see you next time on Cornucopia Microwave on High. Microwave.